Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. All right, everybody. Today, I'm really excited about this guest. Um, his name is Dr. Bradley Klontz, and he is the founder of the Financial Psychology Institute and an associate professor of practice in financial psychology at Creighton University. He's a managing principal of Your Mental Wealth Advisors, and a fellow of the American Psychological Association, and a former president of the Hawaii Psychological Association. He's partnered with organizations including J.P. Morgan Chase and H&R Block in efforts to help raise public awareness around issues related to the financial health and financial psychology. Dr. Klontz has been a columnist for the Journal of Financial Planning on Wall Street and psychologytoday.com and has co-authored and co-edited five books on the psychology of money, including the one that I read called Mind Over Money. His work has been featured on ABC News, 2020, Good Morning America, and in USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times. I mean, he's been everywhere and he's been on a lot of bunch of shows, so I am super excited to have him. So welcome to the show, Brad. Thanks so much for having me. Very happy to be here. And we had just covered right before we recorded um, titles. So, um, Dr. Brad, thank you for being here. <laughs> um, I, I, to, to let everybody know where the money issue comes in, um, my goal in 2019 was actually to overcome my own money concerns, uh, meaning that when my last relationship had ended, which you know kind of started me on this path, I had found myself standing in pretty much the exact same situation that I'd been seven years earlier, which was I had no savings account. My job that I'd been doing or the career I thought path I thought I was going to be on was gone again. Um, and I had on my hands like three maxed out credit cards, my car payment, student loan payment. And I, I felt like that was something I never wanted to repeat again, but yet I didn't know how it was. I ended up in that situation to begin with. Now, I don't talk a lot about my financial issues because like everybody else, they're embarrassing. And I'm, you know, I'm humiliated by the fact that a reasonably intelligent woman like myself who knows how to run businesses and keep businesses on track would still find herself in just a financial disarray uh, that, I mean, is worse than I think what most people actually would, would consider their financial situations. Um, but my issues broke down to pretty much I live paycheck to paycheck. It doesn't matter if I'm making $45,000, $65,000, or $100,000. I was living paycheck to paycheck on a, on a constant basis. Uh, opening bills always scared me. Um, and I don't know why, but I wouldn't open up my bills. And so I would end up falling behind on basic payments, credit cards, or even the electric bill. Whenever I go into a department store, I walked out empty-handed because the prices scared me. And this was even when I was making six figures as the general manager of a manufacturing company. I shopped pretty much exclusively at discount stores or thrift shops. 
I had an automatic response that would tell my kids, we don't have enough money for that. And yet I would also realize that I would find an equivalent amount of money to spend on something for myself that made me feel better. And I had credit cards for two reasons. And they weren't because I was treating myself, but because I would use them to buy extra things, extravagances, dinners, gifts, you know, vacations in order to make the people around me feel happier. And maybe occasionally I would use it for some professional development, but I didn't go buy myself expensive shoes or any of that other stuff, but yet they were maxed out completely. And so in an act of motherhood, I decided that I needed to get this figured out because I didn't want to continue to model for my kids the behaviors that I thought was going to send them off and lead them to a place of being 47 years old and still in this financial disarray. You know, And so I knew that I needed to be able to do and make these changes for myself because I had spent the last year intensely working on myself. And despite doing all of that, still sat here with my budget going, I don't like feel good about this yet. Like I hadn't been able to overcome this piece. And so I reached out, I got the book, Mind Over Money. Here's my copy of it right here. Read through it, mind blown, and then did what I normally do, which is I reach out to the author and go, oh my gosh, can I talk to you and have you on the show? Um, and so, like I said, this is a this is a big deal for me to be able to have Brad here. And I also think that as you're going to be able to to tell us about Financial problems are a thing that a lot of people have and probably don't equate with it being a psychological issue. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think it's you're totally spot on. And what's so interesting to me is that, for example, the American Psychological Association, they do something called Stress in America. It's a survey. Um, and every year they ask people, what stresses you out the most? And what was fascinating to me, like they, they were running this survey all the way before the Great Recession. Session. So I think 2007 was the first year they ran it. And that actually things were great financially as a oh, country. They were good then, yeah. <laughs> right. Things were fabulous. Um, and the number one stressor in the lives of Americans was money. And, um, you know, I'm a parent. Um, I work. You know, having kids is very stressful, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but money was higher than kids, than health, than work family, um, the whole, the whole deal. And, um, which, which always, which struck, strikes you as a bit of an irony again, since we're like the richest country in the world, like we, we have more than most people do. Um, and so what's going on there? Um, and every year since again, three out of four Americans, roughly at that point, money's the biggest source of stress in their lives. And so what's so interesting is it, it's a bit of a taboo topic. And for the reason you described, which is we all feel so much shame around money. Uh, the basics are very, very simple. And I've even, I've worked with, you know, hundreds and thousands of people at this point. I've, I've never found anyone yet who doesn't already know what they should be doing. I mean, that's the interesting thing. You know, oh, I know I should be saving for the future. I know I shouldn't be spending more than I make. So it, it's not an issue of a lack of knowledge. And that's where um, my passion and my work in is, is like, well, then what is it? Um, and sure enough, it's, it's our beliefs around money. It's our psychology around money. It's how we were raised around money. And um, all of the research is panning out and showing that this is indeed true. Like how you were raised around money, the beliefs you have around money, totally predict things like your income, your net worth, your amount of debt, your financial behaviors, your financial health. It's all linked to our psychology. And the other thing is if you're really struggling financially, it's totally linked to um, you know, mental quote disorders. I actually, I'm not a big fan of the word because I, um, right. I feel like it's unfairly stigmatized because, um, 
you know, you, everybody has one at some point. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like the flu, you know, it's like if you're, if you haven't been anxious or depressed, it's, it's probably coming. So it, this is something that we, I think we share as human beings. Uh, but totally, you know, people are stressed around money. They get anxious. They, it keeps them up at night. They're worrying about it. Um, they get depressed about, you know, past decisions they've made. And when you're struggling that much emotionally, of course, your financial life has a tendency to go downhill also. So they're very, very closely linked. Yeah. You know, one of the big pieces of the last personal relationship that I had that fell apart was around money, which is no surprise. Um, and, you know, when you have two people with money disorders and they happen to be different, well, then, I mean, it's a, just a recipe for disaster. Uh, you know, and I never equated this because I, I have been thinking about this topic so much over the last um, last several weeks. And, you know, the other piece that I never uh, kind of linked together was whenever I was in a room or around wealthy people, I always felt like a fraud, even though my whole goal professionally and my whole movement was, you know, to be educated and, and uh, to run successful companies and to have my own businesses because that's what I wanted. Whenever I was in the presence of it, I felt like a fraud and I felt like I don't belong here. And that was a thought that I actually really have been sitting here going back and, you know, um, in your book, you've talked about, you know, one of the big things, and I'm going to, I'm going to move it to the top. I had it as one of my third questions, but you talk about unfinished business, which I love the phrase because that actually was the one that kind of really snapped for me and stuff and how unfinished business can be kind of like the root behind some of these feelings. Describe what you mean for that, because I think that's, that lays the groundwork for us to then build up off of and then talk about what unfinished business, how it erupts, you know, in our lives. Yeah. So we're all carrying with us. You can almost sort of imagine a backpack, and um, that backpack is full of our, our experiences growing up. You know, what, what, hap- what was said to us directly from our parents? What did they tell us about money? What did they, how did they model financial behaviors? How was their financial health? How was their financial stress? This leads to, you know, hundreds and thousands of sort of micro experiences around money and teachings around money. So we're carrying all this stuff with us. And some of us are carrying pain around money. Um, the experience of poverty or not having enough is, is an extremely painful experience. And um, I, I, I wouldn't say I, we were in poverty, but I definitely came from a, um, my mother likes to say that we were working class or we were middle class except lower. <laughs> um, and so I, I definitely grew up with this not being able to get certain things I wanted, certain experiences I wanted. Like, um, you know, for example, I wanted to um, learn martial arts and we could afford to pay for one month of lessons and then I had to drop out and, and little things like that. That's, that's an emotional experience for me. And now I have my own kids and the temptation for me, if I'm not being aware is to give them anything they want. What do you want? We'll get it all for you. Um, because I don't want you to do without like I had to do. Um, so that's a great example of some unfinished business. So I, I grew up feeling like there wasn't enough, there's not enough money. Um, and so that experience leads directly to money scripts, which I'm sure we'll talk about um, as we continue to talk, uh, that, that are these beliefs around money that become your reality. So when you have the reality that there'll never be enough money, which you, you get from unfinished business from your childhood, then you approach money in that way in your adult life. And the difficult part about money, it is a taboo topic, so we don't talk a lot about it. So most of us have very little insight into what's clanking around in our brains around money. Um, it's not something we talk about. In fact, the entire field of psychology ignored the topic of money for decades and decades and decades. It's kind of a new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, not to, not to go too far on a tangent, but 
one of the reasons for that, and I did a study on this, is that uh, mental health professionals have a tendency to be money avoidant. They believe that, you know, there's sort of virtue in not having money, that um, money can corrupt people and, and, you know, greedy people like money. So there's some beliefs around money that are afflicting an entire profession and certainly the one I was sort of, (laughs) I was trained in. Um, But, you know, just an example of how we're approaching money very unconsciously and the field of psychology, which is designed to sort of help people raise their consciousness around all sorts of issues. It's a, it's an entirely new subject for the field of psychology to be um, tackling. I sort of joke that when I got interested in the psychology of money, which for me was directly related to um, losing a bunch of money as I was trying to become wealthy um, and making terrible decisions. We can talk about more details if you want. Um, But I I actually turned to the field of psychology because I was a psychologist. I'm like, okay, so I'm going to do some lit search. I'm going to find three or four studies that are going to tell me exactly why I did what I did. Another reasonable, intelligent, reasonably intelligent person (laughs) doing something totally stupid with his money. And then I was going to move on and do something else with my life. Um, But I realized, I think within about two or three weeks of me looking into this, I was sort of the world's leading expert in financial psychology by the mere fact that the entire field had avoided it um, altogether. So it's, it's, it's no surprise that we're having a very unconscious relationship with money. And that's one of the ways I like to look at it because we have a relationship with this totally that dates back to our unfinished business from ch- typically from childhood. And a lot of those experiences and beliefs around money lead to other experiences that basically reinforce those beliefs. Mm-hmm. If you have the belief that there'll never be enough, you're going to live a life that continues to reinforce your beliefs and telling you you don't ha- there'll never be enough. And you're going to be looking for information in your environment to basically prove you right. It's, it's sort of a fat, it's called cognitive dissonance, mm-hmm. right? And so you have this belief and so you push away any sort of evidence, confront that belief, and instead you just tune into all the different, you know, and you can find this all over the place. There'll never be enough money. So you tune into all the stories about people who had it all and lost it all or people who are living with not enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the, you know, uh, one of the big things for me, because I think about that phrase because it comes up, it's almost like an instantaneous answer out of my mouth. You know, the kids hit me up for something and I'm like, well, I, there's not enough for that. And I stop myself now, like I, you know, I've talked about the whole road to recovery and, and, you know, being able to work on yourself as you're doing things is that it's a conscientious effort, like on a daily basis that you have to stop. And so I stop myself when I say that, or if I do say it, kind of retract it and go, okay, hold on, actually, let's see what we've got budget wise, you know, let's just take a look at, you know, what we've got going on, because sometimes there isn't enough money. But what I had discovered, like I said, was that I somehow managed to manufacture some money for something else, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was at, and I began to look at like how I responded to my kids. And it was like, yeah, that's a, that's a message I'm used to receiving, like on a pretty regular basis, there's not enough. And then seeing the, um, the hypocrisy of seeing it being spent someplace else. And I know I've looked at some of the studies where they talk about um, the marshmallow test. Somebody was talking about the big marshmallow test of like, you know, the delayed gratification and, you know, that people that could delay their gratification and the kids wouldn't eat the marshmallow did better in life. And they were just recently re-looking at that test from a socioeconomic background and going, you know what, actually the wealthier kids could delay gratification because they weren't worried that that marshmallow was going to go anywhere. Whereas the poorer kids couldn't hold themselves back because they were worried that it wouldn't be there for them. And I found that kind of linking with me of like, yeah, like that's that paycheck to paycheck. Doesn't matter how much I have. There's always, there might not be enough next week. I might as well spend it all this week and enjoy it and keep going subconsciously. You know, I never meant to do any of that. So I, that's, Hmm. I said this whole book for you just uh, that you wrote just blew my mind here. Um, 
so let's lay out money disorders. You know, you, you've broken these out into, you know, categories. So let's explain what they actually are. Yeah. So money disorders is really um, a way to try to describe chronic self-defeating financial behaviors. So it's sort of a broad category of things that you already know better. You know, like, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. I mean, that, that's one of the factors. Like, and that's what makes um, this embarrassing, right? Is right, the fact that exactly. I know I shouldn't be doing this. And if anybody right. knew I was doing this stupid stuff, they might not respect me, you know, in any way. So you just don't talk about it. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's sort of that, you know, secrecy and shame. Um, and then, you know, you have to ask yourself, why are three out of four Americans so stressed about money? Well, they're probably doing the same thing. You know? yeah. Um, be, yeah. So, so yeah, they're, they're chronic self-defeating patterns of financial behaviors in general. Yeah. Okay. And, and they lead to all sorts of problems. Like, so that's the other part. Like yeah. they, uh, they're disabling, they cause you stress in your relationships. They cause you financial strain. Um, sometimes they cause you problems at work, you know, where you're focused or, you know, you're, you're sort of focused around this concern. And so it distracts you. So you can't really perform your, um, you know, your, your functions in life the way you would like to if you weren't otherwise burdened by this money disorder. Right. Now you had a, uh, on your guys's website, you have an inventory, a test basically that you can take. It's the Klontz Money Behavior Inventory, the KMBI. And I mm-hmm. took it because I was totally interested in seeing it. And the, the results of it, well, and I'm, I'm happy to share what them are, but the different patterns or the different types were compulsive buying, a gambling mm-hmm. disorder, a hoarding disorder, this one surprised me, workaholism, financial dependence, financial enabling, financial denial, and financial enmeshment. And um, I guess I was surprised by workaholism because I've definitely been a workaholic and still, but I never equated that to a money disorder. Why does that end up being a money disorder on this list? Yeah, great question. And workaholism is the one that we all like to claim, right? It's like, (laughs) it's the good one, right? Um, And but the problem with workaholism is, and by the way, I'm, I'm a recovering workaholic. I, I'm in recovery right now, actually. <laughs> um, and it's a day-to-day journey, right? Like, it, it's hard for me to get up from this desk right here and stop doing whatever it is I'm doing, partially because I absolutely love what I'm doing. Um, so there's, there's actually two different types of workaholism. There's the one where you just love your job, and there's the one where you hate your job. Um, but basically, workaholism is an, an obsession with work. And there's a downside to it. And they've done lots of studies on workaholics and they have a tendency to have a lower relationship satisfaction, meaning that your partner, your spouse doesn't really like it, that you are perhaps more married to work than you are to them. And it leads to problems with your kids who grow up with an absent parent because you're not there. And and what does that do to them? Well, it creates sense of resentment, sense of um, maybe that, you know, I'm not as important as I would like to be. Um, And it leads to basically lifelong potential impairment in your relationship with your kids. It also can lead to health problems. Well, it is. It's associated with health problems. It's associated with an increased risk in um, mental illness too, like depression, anxiety. So um, it's it, workaholism is one of those ones that society really reinforces. Like if you're a really good workaholic, there's a really good chance you're going to get a, you know, a raise and get promoted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But it is one of those things that psychologically, relationally, it comes at a very heavy cost. Right, right. And my score on that was 4.4. So it was one of my my higher categories on that. Um, Compulsive buying was a 3.18. It was for other people. Gambling disorder, one. Hoarding disorder, one. Uh, Financial dependence, 1.8. So what's a financial dependence? So financial dependence um, is basically where you're 
uh, dependent on income that is not associated with your efforts, your, your work-related efforts. Um, and so what's interesting about financial dependence, you, you can envision, um, you know, chronic people who are, you know, families in chronic welfare families. And I say chronic because, you know, you're sort of brought up realizing, hey, I, there's money, checks come in, it's not really attached to work. Um, and so this can be something that's modeled, you know, you're getting money for nothing, for doing nothing, basically. Um, and money is a very, very powerful reinforcer. And so we always like to like, I think it's, it's real easy to create a straw person and throw rocks at it, you know, when you see somebody who's you know, getting, you know, um, welfare or whatever money for nothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's actually totally human nature. Like I could take anybody and give them money for doing nothing and it'll reinforce doing nothing. This could (laughs) happen to all of us. So this is my point. Like, um, and what's so interesting is, is that pattern of behavior, you see it on the opposite side of the socioeconomic spectrum. It looks different. Psychologically, it's very similar where, you know, this is sort of the stereotypical trust fund baby. So this is somebody, you know, born with a silver spoon in their mouth. They're getting money for doing nothing. Um, And actually, psychologically, it's a really similar emotional consequence. And so in the research we've done on financial dependence, we have found that people who are financially dependent have a tendency to have lower levels of basically self-esteem, drive, motivation, passion. It makes sense. Like for, for, for me, you know, I get money for doing work. And so it's a powerful reinforcer. So I get inspired. Oh, I should do more work. You know, this happens as a, as a child for me. Um, Oh, the more you work, the more money you get, the more money you get, the more things you can do, things you can have, et cetera, Uh, more food you can eat. It's a very powerful reinforcer. And so, and it also leads, and this is really interesting. It leads to resentment towards the people who are giving you money. Hmm. which is a fascinating concept. Really? Yeah. So, and it's totally true. People who um, are perhaps getting government checks will very often have a very negative view towards the government and trust people who are um, sort of dependent on that non-work income from a family trust or or whatever, very often will have very mixed feelings towards people giving it to them, sometimes resenting them because it all comes with strings attached Mm -hmm. on both sides. Like on the lower spectrum, there's all this stuff you're going to have to do to the government for the government to prove that you're worthy of it and that you deserve it. Same thing quite often with ultra high net worth people who are dependent on trust income. You know, there's conditions associated with it. So you're feeling controlled, you're feeling disempowered, um, and you're not getting that natural reinforcement for your own efforts and your own creativity and your own passions and motivations. Hmm. Yeah, and I can actually see that um, about having that conditional aspect of it, which is a trauma that a lot of people have grown up with is uh, being in their household and and it it wasn't unconditional love. It was having to do things, behave a certain way in order to receive this, you know, the feedback, you know, whether it's praise or allowance or just attention from your parents or, you know, caregivers and stuff like that. Um, So I can, I mean, it's funny because I I think it's fascinating that the financial psychology is relatively new, but then when you break it down and you start to look at it in the context of all the other, you know, psychological, and I'm I'm with you, disorders is a tough word. So I just say mental wellness issues that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we're all approaching. It's not surprising that they are, you know, linked and connected together. Um, Financial enabling is a, and these are where I start to get on the charts here. I had a 5.17 and the scale is one to six. So Mm -hmm. with, you know, high scores are not good in this one. So, um, describe what financial enabling and actually financial denial, both of those were over five for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So financial enabling is another way to look at it is financial help that hurts. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it hurts the person giving it and it hurts the person receiving it. 
So financial enabling is where we are um, basically, we're the source of reinforcement for somebody else doing nothing or mismanaging money. And um, some interesting things, some studies we've done, uh, individuals who are higher income but grew up in lower socioeconomic backgrounds tend to be more vulnerable to financial enabling type behaviors. Um, yeah. um, so, so it's, and, and part of it has to do with a sense of guilt, I think. Like, mm-hmm. um, and also, it, it's very much related to the socioeconomic group you grew up in. And what we've noticed in uh, groups of uh, people who have less is there tends to be more of a, um, a value around sharing. And so when you don't have as much, you share more um, mm-hmm. as a group and as a community because we all want to survive and we all want to, we all need to work together to make that happen typically. And you can think back to like um, tribe, tribal societies thousands of years ago. That's exactly how it was, right? There, you wouldn't say that there's a lot of wealth going on. As a matter of fact, we're all hungry. So let's all get together, go hunting, and then we all get to eat what we, what we got. Um, so the, prob- the problem or one of the challenges in leaving that socioeconomic group. And let's face it, a lot of us want to. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> being poor is not a very fun experience quite often. <laughs> right. So, you know, we would, of course, we don't want to be poor. We want to make more money. Um, in order to do that, quite often, it's like, um, I call it a financial comfort zone. And you have to leave your financial comfort zone. Another way to look at it is you have to sort of leave your tribe um, in terms of how that tribe is approaching money, how they're thinking about money. Because if you want to be join the ranks of the wealthy, you're probably going to have to think very differently and do things very differently, which is something I learned when I tried to join the ranks of the wealthy without having any of that knowledge and information, um, which is what got me interested in financial psychology to begin with. Um, it's like learning a new culture. It's learning a new way of being, a, way, a, new, a new way of doing things. Um, you know, another uh, vulnerability to growing up lower socioeconomic class is we have this do-it-yourself mentality. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I remember the first time I had to pay someone else to do my taxes, the, everything inside of me is like, oh, my gosh, don't do that. You know, um, and, you know, in retrospect, it's like I really encourage you to do that. <laughs> you know, um, like I know you have a pair of pliers in your garage, but if you have a sore tooth, go see a professional dentist. OK, it's worth the money. Um, and the same thing is true when you're starting to emerge into that middle, upper middle class, higher socioeconomic levels. Um, you kind of had need to have a team. You have to shift this like do-it-yourself mentality because a little bit of money paid towards a consultation with an attorney or a CPA can save you thousands of dollars later. That's why that's why people do it. Um, but just an example of some some of that thinking that you can have in a um, poorer, lower socioeconomic group that just does not work if you want to maintain and grow wealth and, and move into that other group. But once you start to move into that other group, your brain and the survival parts of your brain are going to panic. Mm-hmm. You're going to have an internal panic attack because you're moving away from your tribe. And we really are driven by this animal brain that's been around for thousands of years that kept us ar- alive in tribal societies. And so one of the worst things that could have possibly happened to you, you know, 20,000 years ago would be for the tribe to go this way and for you to be here by yourself. It actually meant death. And one of the worst things that would happen to people is getting banished from your tribe. People would actually rather be killed than, that, than have that happen because that sense of affiliation and connection is so critically important to our survival, our psychological well-being. So long story short, when people start to you know, come from that situation, they're starting to make a lot more money, there's a tremendous amount of psychological um, uh, you know, energy towards trying to help people out on the other side. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I can, I, and I can see that piece of it too. I, um, because I have it, at certain times been made to feel guilty for having it. So, you know, as I, you know, got better and better jobs, there is the, you know, kind of the, we've seen, you know, people wanting handouts, but some people didn't necessarily need to ask me for it. I just felt like I needed to give them because of the, the shame piece. And I think what, you know, what you're describing there is, you know, mentally not feeling a, like I belonged there. So when you are up in that other tribe, you're like, well, I, I don't know that I think I'm a fraud. So I need to act like I'm still like everybody else and hang out back here with, with these folks there. Um, I was surprised by that one too, to, to see that score. Now the other financial denial, I mean, I admitted it like, you know, financial denial. Yeah. Not wanting to open the bills, you know, being, you know, afraid of those pieces of life. Um, describe in more detail what the financial denial disorder, you know, might look for other people too. Yeah. So financial denial is, is basically what it sounds like where you're, you're actually going to sort of not pay attention and push aside or push down your financial realities. And, uh, you know, in our studies, you know, the beliefs associated with that, are what we call financial avoidant beliefs, which is um, very, quite often comes from a sense of, you know, money's bad or um, my financial situation is bad and I don't want to look at it because when I look at it, it creates psychological pain. Of course it does. It's not very much fun to open up a bill that you know you can't pay, right? And now your situation might be very different now. Like you might be able to totally pay it, but you can have this association from just picking up a bill and being like, oh, you know, having, because you saw your parents struggle with that. Um, because you grew up in that situation. And so um, it, it's highly associated with having some financial trouble too. So you don't want to look at your statements, et cetera. And so they start to stack up, which of course makes your financial situation worse, which then makes you want to avoid it even more. Mm -hmm. So it's actually this vicious cycle uh, that actually leads you into a lot worse trouble. Yeah. And, um, and it's the one that I think, like I said, I trip over, or I think most people would trip over. They don't you know, they don't think of it as having some sort of unfinished business route, you know, in there. You know, one of the pieces of the book that I was, I found really interesting, and I had actually had written to you and said this, was that your dad's story really resonated with me of like, you know, growing up, because the, and I believe his tale also talked about having, uh, having other people determine your value. And so, you know, part of the mind blowing aspects of this for me was, you know, I had found myself professionally in many situations and again, I should have known better, but I didn't, where I was not being paid at all, or I was being paid substantially less because I didn't have control over or felt like I had power. This is it in assigning what my own value was in here. And so in one of them, you know, I spent years building up a business, never got a paycheck for it. And that's astonishing. People would be like, how is it that you never got paid? And I'm like, well, I don't know why I didn't get paid. I wish I, I did, but there was a dynamic that's in there. But yet that's, that's common for people, uh, you know, to, well, maybe not that common, but that is a condition for people to, and that's one of my big ones is how do I get over the fact that I'm actually worth something and to, and to stand and assert themselves with it. Now, what have you guys seen with, you know, some of that and your work around financial psychology, sorry. Yeah. You know, so it, it, it's extremely common and um, it actually works the other direction too. Like, so if you're, if you grew up in a really high socioeconomic group, you're like, well, of course you need to pay me a lot of money, <laughs> you know, regard, regardless of what, what I'm actually doing and how much it's, it's actually worth. Mm -hmm. Of course you need to. Um, and it's sort of just this assumption that I'm going to make a lot of money and I deserve to make money. And the same thing is on the flip side. So it's actually the exact sort of same psychology. It just plays out very, very differently. But it really is that sense of what I'm worth financially, which is totally something that you learned growing up mm -hmm. and, and in your, you know, in, in the group that you were growing up in. Um, and so it's sort of advocating that responsibility and sort of letting other people decide 
how much you're worth and getting paid. So it's, it's a really, it's part of that shift that we need to make psychologically if we really want to turn around our financial lives or to, you know, well, it's one thing to make money. It's a whole nother, other thing to keep it and manage it well. Right. <laughs> Two very different things. Yeah. I know a lot of people make a lot of money and have no net worth. Yeah. Um, so those are two very different things. And that's actually another big shift. You know, it's like part of what um, the problem, I think, for a lot of people who want to become wealthy is that they're being fed just a bunch of lies about how people actually do that and what they do when they are wealthy. Um, and it, it can be extremely confusing because what you see in the media are people who are buying a bunch of stuff. And, you know, I mean, quite frankly, that's not what high net worth people do. Mm -hmm. Um, they actually save money. I mean, that, that's what net worth is. So they're not buying a bunch of, you know, disposable products that, you know, reduce value like clothes and cars and that kind of thing. That's a sure way to not become wealthy. Um, but we're, we're sort of fed those lies. And so then we think, um, and we want a taste of it, right? So when we start making some money, we want to get a little bit of taste of that wealth. And so we actually handle money the opposite way that people who are actually wealthy manage money. Mm -hmm. Now, is that from a psychological standpoint, you know, feeding a little bit of their, and we talk again, we go back to unfinished business, which is a great phrase, you know, that lack that they may still feel inside of them, either their self-esteem or their self-worth or, you know, and all that, right? I mean, because there's a, there's a high, a pleasure someone gets from buying something and, and flaunting it or enjoying it or whatever. Um, I know for, you know, myself, like buying things related to my personal development is how I got excited. So while I didn't go buy shoes, they just, you know, I do have shoes, but you know, I didn't, I wasn't one of those compulsive shoppers. I did, I did at low points want to reinvest in myself thinking that I was going, it was going to help me further on and recognizing that like, I didn't have $3,000 to spend on that. Like, but I did it anyways for for a reason un, unrelated to what I should have done or what was, you know, the right choice and, and decision for myself. So let's talk about money scripts. What are those and, and what are the typical ones that you've seen in your research and working with people? Yeah. So money scripts are those typically subconscious beliefs we have about money that are most often developed in childhood, passed down to us quite often from generations. They can go generations back. Um, and the, the studies we've done have shown that these things predict income, net worth, and, and a whole host of financial behaviors. So they're incredibly powerful. You really want to know what your money scripts are. Um, and what we did is we um, collected as many of these beliefs around money as we, we could over, over basically a 10-year period working with clients. And then I um, put them into a, a, you know, curated the list so we weren't being repetitive. And then I put it into about a 75-number list. And then we, we had thousands of people take it. And then we did a little statistical trick on it to figure out what patterns exist. Like, are there personality types? Are there patterns? And sure enough, there were, and we identified four different um, patterns of money scripts, three of which are associated with terrible financial outcomes, and one is associated with good financial outcomes. So uh, money avoidance is one of the categories we found. And this, these are beliefs like rich people are greedy, money corrupts, and there's virtue in living with less money. And I got to tell you, growing up where I grew up, this was one of the money scripts clanking around in my head. Mm -hmm. You know, like rich people, they must be sort of bad, or they got rich by taking advantage of others. And, and part of what that did, I think, in my family system is it all made us feel better about not being rich. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then, of course, you go and you search out information, and there's plenty of rich people doing terrible things in the world. You don't <laughs> have to look far. Um, but you screen out all the rich people doing incredibly great things in the world. And so it's only part of the story. All these money scripts are part of the story. They're partially true, um, but they don't reflect the entire, our, the entire reality. 
um, but they have a profound impact on our lives. The second category is what we call money worship. This is the belief that more money is going to make you happier. It's going to solve all your problems. Um, and this, not surprisingly, leads to overspending because I might not have the money, but I do have a credit card. And so if I can go buy this thing, it's going to make me happier. So we call that money worship. Third category that we found is called money status. This, this is sort of the keeping up with the Jones effect. So it's really interesting. That is actually a real thing. I mean, I think we all can relate to it, but we found the beliefs behind that. Um, and these are beliefs like if somebody asked me how much I made, I'd probably tell them I made more than I did. I won't buy something unless it's new. And it's very much this focus on I want to show the external world that I'm valuable. Um, and again, associated with bad financial outcomes, lower income, lower net worth, um, higher credit card debt, and actually growing up in a poor family. So that money status, we're more likely to fall into that. The fourth category, and there's some good news here, um, money vigilance. This is the belief that it's important to save for a rainy day. Now, what was fascinating for me about that is there's actually people who don't believe that, and it's Mm -hmm. actually true, there are. Um, And it makes total sense. Like if I, back to your marshmallow experiment example, if I save money and then somebody steals it, you're an idiot to save it. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of stories about that happening. That was my grandfather's story. Um, he lost all of his money, our whole family money, which I don't know, I think it was that much, but during the great depression, he went to the bank one day, it was all gone. Um, and so, whoa, powerful experience. We call that a financial flashpoint. You can't trust banks around money. Um, I didn't know this until I started to look into my own financial psychology, but boom, mind blowing for me is that my grandfather died around age 93, never put a dollar in the bank his whole life. So he kept it all in a box and in the attic. Um, which, by the way, got stolen about six times. He lived in, in a really bad neighborhood in, in Detroit. It was broken into all the time, all the stuff getting stolen. <clears throat> so that got reinforced too. People are going to take your money. So there is a ex- life experience that will tell you, don't save money. It would be dumb to do it. But money vigilance is important to save money. In fact, I'd be a nervous wreck if I didn't have money safer in an emergency. That's part of money vigilance. Um, and you think about that, like ultra high net worth people who've created it themselves, have a desire to save, mm-hmm. right? So there's this, and quite often they came from humble beginnings. That was one of our studies too. It sort of blew the myth that people who are rich were born that way. Actually, no. I mean, in, our, in the studies we've done, most of them earned it themselves in that first generation. So it's totally available to you if you shift your beliefs and, and then your subsequent behaviors. But you need to have a bit of anxiety, um, a bit of sort of like anticipatory um, worry about having enough in the future. That, that seems to be a component of savings and it makes total sense. Like squirrels, if they were just sort of laissez-faire about having enough food, <laughs> they would starve in the winter, right? So they need to like hide those nuts. Um, and so, so other squirrels don't find it. And by the way, um, not to digress too much, feel free to cut this out. But if, an, if, a, if, a squirrel, if a squirrel sees another squirrel watching it hide a nut, it'll pretend to hide the nut there. <laughs> and go find another place to hide it. And I just love this metaphor because you know, we're all, we all have a squirrel brain. Right. right? So this is part of hardwired into our experience in the world of not having enough. That's a scarcity mindset. Somebody's going to come take it from me. So yeah. I got to hide it. Um, but money vigilance has some of that. And also they are somewhat secretive about having money. Now that that's interesting too. When you're seeing people flashing a bunch of money on media, um, you know, that's not what typical ultra high net worth people do. They actually are worried that you might judge them for ha- it's worry on the other side too. You're going to judge them. And so they're somewhat secretive around it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Huh? Fascinating. Yeah. And so is it, but is money vigilant better 
or is it just it's you're less likely to lose everything? <laughs> well, it, it's it's actually totally better. Um, okay. You need to have some some of that vigilance in order to save money mm-hmm. um, and to acquire money. And there is, of course, a downside. Like you can be hyper vigilant. Like, mm-hmm. um, and this is a common pattern too. And it usually comes from people who grew up poor, became wealthy, and now they're so afraid of not having enough that they can can't even enjoy life. Mm-hmm. Like, what a sad thing that is. Ebenezer Scrooge, classic example. Um, that was the title of my first book was the financial wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge and his transformation. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, don't do that. Like he's living a life of poverty. He has all the money he needs, but that poverty mindset continued with him. And so sometimes we see that with money vigilance. If you're so worried about not having enough, you're not going to be able to enjoy all that hard work and effort. Right. Right. How do you, how do you suggest people start to treat these disorders. I mean, what's, what's a great first step? Because I feel like they, somebody might have multiple, like I did here, like multiple different areas that feel like they're unrelated to one another. So how do you get your arms around something that could feel when you're already stressed out about the whole process? You know, what's a great first step for someone? Well, I think that a great first step is to try to get some insight into why you're doing what it is, what, what you're doing. Um, and this is, you know, I don't want to underestimate the power of this because again, you know, money is one of those topics that we just don't talk about. Um, and so there's very few opportunities for you to have some insight into like how your family did money and, and, you know, comparing it to how other people do money, compare it to relationships. Like, I mean, isn't high school all about trying to figure out relationships and isn't that what everybody's talking about? Who's dating who and what it was like and um, you know, you go over to your, your family, your friends, their parents interact and there's just tons of talking about what's your ideal spouse or what's your ideal partner or dating, blah, blah, blah. how'd the date go? Tell me what happened. <laughs> um, it's, it's sort of the opposite around money. So again, we have relationship with money. Nobody ever talks about it. Um, a lot of times parents don't talk about it. And in fact, when they do surveys, parents are so stressed about money, they would actually rather talk to their kids about sex than about money. And I have kids and look, I'm not really excited about talking about sex with my kids at all. Um, that, that's actually not something I'm really looking forward to, but people would rather do that than talk about money. So it's a huge source of stress. So it, we're, it's this cloud of secrecy. And so there's such power in sort of penetrating that dark cloud with some light and looking at this stuff. So first of all, I'd applaud, I'd applaud anyone who's willing to even stay this far in this interview around money and, and to really sort of think about a great place to start. What was it like for you growing up around mm-hmm. money? What did your mother teach you about money? How about three things? Three things your mother taught you about money. Three things your father taught you about money. What is your earliest money memory? What is your most joyful money memory? Your most painful money memory? So, so collecting some, just doing a little bit of introspection on that. And then the question I would add at the end is, and based on these experiences, based on what they were, you were taught, based on what your parents did or didn't model, like not talking about money is a huge message around money. Mm-hmm. It's either it's too scary or it's not important. Kids walk away with these beliefs around money and then go live their life as if it's true. So based on your upbringing, what lessons did you walk away with that are in, totally you're living out right now? That's number one. And number two, are they helping you or are they hurting you? Mm-hmm. 
You know, one of I, you guys mentioned in the book too several times about having these moments, like a flashbulb moment, or you know, and it's different terms that have been used for it. But just the things that still stick in your head many years later that are worth really reflecting on. And I know when I was going through there, I was kind of like, oh, I don't, I don't feel like I ever got like the hardcore strong money sucks. This is you know whatever it was. It was really much more insidious and much more uh, very thin across, just but spread out everywhere. And so, and I'm bringing this up because as people do what you're suggesting, which you know I did myself, it was like it was really hard to find strong, powerful statements for me to go, yeah, that's what I learned, and that you know this person always said it. I had to actually get down and think about what was it on a just a day to day basis, and sometimes it was not what was said; it was sometimes just you know, a feeling about it or just looking around the, you know, the, the small messages here and there, we don't have enough today or, you know, whatever. One of the memories that I actually was able to neutralize just in the last couple of weeks, because like I said, I'm, I'm committed to making this change for myself was, you know, when I was 13 years old, I went to a birthday party and, you know, when I had grown up, I'd grown up in a poor neighborhood in our hometown. And when we came together at the middle school, the junior high, it happened to be the junior high that had the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich all converging in this one school together. And I made friends with a, with a girl that lived on the Hill, which is the, you know, the exclusive, um, higher income part of our town. How exciting. How exciting. Right. I know. And it was, except it was also terrifying. Right. <laughs> so when I went to the, the party and I still like, I'm 47 years old and I remember the moment. And so I was like, I have one of these moments. It was riding in the, her mother's Jaguar coming back from swimming at her grandparents' house in their pool. And I was terrified that my wet bathing suit, my wet rear end was going to ruin her leather seats. And her mother was so kind and my friend was so kind, but the whole day there was no joy for it out of me because I, I felt the whole time, like I don't belong here. Like I'm the poorest kid here and this is not cool. Like I'm not around going, Oh my God, this is amazing. It was more like, Oh my God, this isn't for me. They're, they're going to realize I don't belong here. And you know, riding in that car, I remember that it was, you know, a green Jaguar XJR, it, you know, dark green color, the burl maple interior on it. I remember her mom being so nice about it. But yet every memory I had reflecting back on that memory, the only thing I carried forward with me was my fear that day. And I actually reached out just last week to my friend and I said, you know, if it weren't for the kindness you and your mother showed me that day, I wouldn't have a new way of re-anchoring this memory for me. And I said, after I kind of grieved that small girl feeling like she didn't belong and was able to let it go and just go, you know what, Ami, you, you actually do belong. Like there, nobody told you you didn't belong there. In fact, those people said you were welcome in there. So that's what you need to remember about that experience. And I, I told him, thank you, you know, 30 plus years. And I said, please let your mom know that that helps me now. And it was like looking back at, wow, how many times has that happened in my life that I need to actually start to, you know, unwind. And, I, and again, I share this because other people sitting here going, yeah, this feels like something I need to work on. How do I get there? Well, that's, that's an example of how you have to get there is, you know, to kind of dig in and, and take a look at that. And it's amazing because, you know, when you go through the past, you know, to go through this unfinished business, you're going to, you're going to stumble in on these moments where you're just like, wow, it still hurts today. It shouldn't, but for some reason it still does, right? The primitive brain part here is still bringing that memory up in a, in a hard way. And those are the places where you actually do get to explore and, and neutralize that. And so I was grateful for being able to do that. And I'm grateful because, you know, reading and, and listening to you about this topic has, has made that happen. 
Now, my show is self-improvement and parenting, and you're a parent. And of course, now I am completely terrified of what I'm doing and showing my kids as I'm working through my money disorders and having this. What do I need to do so that my kids, you know, are seeing and, and hearing from me the right messages so that I'm not, you know, passing down to this next generation and uh, some of the same things that I'm trying to work out right now? You know, what's your advice to parents that finally have to, like, stop and, you know, reparent themselves and reparent for their kids? Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, what an incredibly powerful story you just shared. Um, and, you know, of course you felt like a fraud. Uh, because you didn't belong there. I mean, and you knew that as a little kid, you're like, whoa, this is, this is a whole nother world. Um, and wow, you know, I, I, I don't know that I belong here. I, I remember, I, I remember vividly the first time I, I sat at a restaurant and they had more than like one fork at the table and I'm like, uh, okay, so what am I, I mean, I, I was sort of paralyzed. I'm like, and there's, and there's more cups than I'm used to and glasses and there's more dishes. And I, I just knew that I was in a totally different world. Um, and you know, you can develop a sense of terror or a sense of curiosity, uh, a sense of excitement, but whatever it is, but you totally realize you don't belong there. And, um, it is actually one of the things that I think is, is a huge challenge. It's, it's almost like I equate it to going to a different country, you know, and all of a sudden you're immersed in a totally different culture where people do things totally differently. They have different beliefs around money. You know, some, sometimes, well, very often they have different values. You know, not that they don't value family, but they might be spending money in a way that other people don't spend money. And it's such a profound experience that um, for many people, it's totally terrifying. And it's one of the reasons why you see people stuck in a certain socioeconomic level for generations, mm -hmm. for generations and generations, um, because it's so much more comfortable. Like we know my family are experts for generations and how to live poor <laughs> and how, and how to get your basic needs met and how to, how to do family, et cetera. And so there's tons of psychological pressure for me to just stay right where my family was socioeconomically. Um, we, we like to, it's so easy to like, you know, make fun of people who win the lottery and blow it all and be like, Oh my gosh, what an idiot. Um, I would totally do things differently. This, by the way, that's always what follows, you know, is like right. this assumption. But the reality is, that it is a terrifying experience for most people who experience it. I, I know that everyone listening is like, yeah, well, well why don't you try me out? Uh, <laughs> right, give and, me some money. <laughs> yeah, why don't you try me out? It'll be different for me. And, and I truly hope it would be. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is for most people is it leads to a, a bunch of anxiety, a bunch of drama, and most people go back to right where they were within a few years because it is so difficult. Um, it dramatically changes all your relationships. Um, if you, and I've worked with people who are lottery winners or, or big time entertainers who worked really hard and athletes who, and then all of a sudden they get a bunch of money. The amount of stress that, that ensues is mind boggling. And when you're, when you're immersed in it, you can see totally why people would just rather go back to being normal, mm -hmm. going back to operating the way they knew, you know, not having that experience that you had around, how do I act? What do I do? And not only that, like when you're poor going towards, um, you know, when you're poor going to that higher net worth area, it also is accompanied with this. I don't deserve this. Like, I don't just, you know, there's sort of that like um, devaluing of yourself as a person um, because of that socioeconomic label. Um, so anyway, I totally resonate with that. Um, but back to your question around parenting. And um, of course, you know, experts are, are great at knowing all this stuff. I'm a total expert in this area, but I have my own kids, you know, and so, so it's something I'm working on too, because 
big part of this is unconscious, like what spills out of your mouth, right? And mm-hmm. so a huge part of it is knowing where you came from. And I already love how you've addressed the we can't afford it sort of message because that's a really powerful message because basically you're telling your kids, um, well, you know, we're in this socioeconomic class. We do not have enough money to do right. that. We, yeah, yes. right. I'm bringing yeah, we, them into our us. story. Yeah, right. Yep, yep, yep. yep. And I, I like to argue this, that, no, you totally could afford it. Just sell your house. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, you have the money to do this. Like for, if you're middle class, you have the money to do most things, you know, but like, oh, we want to go to Disney World and spend 10 days. You totally can afford it. Just sell your house, sell your car. You, you have, there's, you have the money, go do it. You know? So it's like, Hey, I, we, I want a swimming pool, mom. And, and you could say, well, you know what? I mean, technically we could, we could just, we could get one if we wanted, but here's the reason why we're not because we are taking our money. And we're putting some aside for this vacation we'd like to take. And we're putting some other money aside for your education. And we're putting some other money aside because we'd like to retire someday. So you're shifting from, you know, the message of scarcity in the world, which has a bunch of negative consequences, by the way, um, to one of, yeah, abundance. We, we could do that. But here are, my, here are our values. Like, I want to pass down values to my children, not this scarcity sort of mindset. Yeah, that's really good advice. Uh, just changing the the words, and that's what I've been trying to consciously do with them. Is well, here you know, here's the things that we'd like to be able to do, and um, and how we're going to get to it and stuff. And so I appreciate that because it is it is terrifying, uh, especially when you feel like you have so much more that you can do with yourself, and you feel that you really have sold yourself short by making these you know again these dumb decisions that you should know better. And we have to stop beating ourselves up for those dumb decisions, right? Like that's another another big piece of this to stop. It's huge. It's so huge. Um, I actually, in the book, you'll recall this, we call it the big lie about personal finance. And the big lie is that your money problems are the result of being crazy, lazy, or stupid. And it's a huge lie because actually it's totally predictable. Like if I, if I knew where you grew up, if I knew what your mother taught you, what your dad taught you, um, your grandparents, your great grandparents, that whole family legacy, I where you are right now in your financial life is totally predictable. And if I took almost anybody and stuck them there, they'd probably be just struggling with the exact same thing you're struggling with. And so this is another huge, huge hack um, around it. I call it de-shaming. Like, look, if you are stressed about money, first of all, welcome to the club. You're an American. Uh, Cause again, three out of four Americans are doing this. Right. Um, number one, number two, if you're engaging in self-destructive financial behaviors, of course you are, you know, again, if I knew your beliefs, if I knew how you're raised, I could totally predict that you're doing this. So you're, it, it's a result of your financial psychology. It's a result of how you were raised. Um, and it is your fault to a sense. Like you are engaging in these behaviors, but of course you are. Of course you are. So stop doing that and do something else. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, so you've convinced me. So how does somebody come to you to get help with all of this stuff? I mean, you are, you know, the expert in this area here and I, and I know people are going to go, Oh my gosh, like I, I definitely, I want to look into it. So what resources do you actually have for people to do? I mean, aside from your books and, you know, online, I mean, spill it. Yeah. So, you know, I've been putting a lot of effort in the last six months to putting as much content in this area, really with a focus on transformation. Um, and I've been thinking about it a lot too. And, and, you know, I work with ultra high net worth clients as, as a, um, as part of a registered investment advisory firm called your mental wealth advisors. So I'm working with clients there. Um, but I've always been fascinated with 
doing studies on, you know, rich people, I guess, you know, um, and the psychological differences, like, you know, what's going on there? Because I know that, um, and so we've done several studies on this already. Um, and I know that if I can teach people the psychology of wealth, these are shifts you can make mentally that will have a dramatic difference in your financial outcomes. And that is what's so exciting for me is that, you know, just because you were born poor, born middle class, that doesn't mean you have to stay there. And if you shift your psychology, you can totally shift your outcomes. And so one of my passion projects right now is my YouTube channel, Mm -hmm. creatively named Dr. Brad Klontz on YouTube. (laughs) But but there I'm, I'm trying to take the best of what we know on the studies we're doing and our research and putting it into YouTube videos that are consumable by the average person. Um, and so that, that would be the first resource I would suggest is go there, check it out. The other one you, you also talked about on yourmentalwealth.com, we have the money disorder assessment. So if you're interested in looking at your money behaviors more closely, go there. You can take it for free. Report automatically gets emailed to you. And the other resource I would say is at yourmentalwealthadvisors.com, um, we have the money script inventory. And, and this is the beliefs behind those behaviors. And so um, th- this is sort of the research we've been doing most recently on the wealthy people versus the middle class and poor people. How, how do they think differently? What are the beliefs? And so we've been able to link these beliefs directly to financial outcomes. So I'd encourage you to go there as a test. And all these resources I mentioned are all free. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. Well, Brad, it's been amazing to have you here on the show with me. I really do appreciate your time. I'm glad we were able to connect and hook up and, and, and do this. And so again, for everybody that's actually listening or watching the video, all the links are going to be in the description so you can get to his YouTube channel and to the websites that he actually mentioned. The books, um, like I said, I can't recommend this enough. This is Mind Over Money. I got mine on Amazon, so you can do the same as well. Um, or you can buy it for, I think you guys, your website sells it directly, maybe um, if I recall seeing it there. Uh, but again, thank you so much for being on One Broken Mom and my, my pleasure having you here with me. My pleasure, Ami. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at amiquiraconi.com and there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Quirconi, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.